Revelation chapter 3, looking at verses 14 to 22, the church of Laodicea, known as the lukewarm church. So thus far, we've looked at the church of Ephesus, was the church that lost its first love. We looked at the church of Smyrna, the persecuted church. The church of Pergamos, the compromising church. The church of Thyatira, the immoral church. The church of Sardis, which is the apathetic church. Last week we had a joy of looking at the church of Philadelphia, which is the obedient church. And today we look at the seventh and final church, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Again, as in all the churches, they're found today in the country of Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, or once known as Asia. And this is about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 90 miles east of Ephesus, north of the modern uh, city today, Denzili. Um, Its Turkish name is Ishki Ishar, which means old castle. It's a a city that no longer exists. It's just a mound, which is called a tell, um, of what once was a city, the city of Laodicea eventually be sort of blended into cities that were near it, um, Hierapolis and Colossae. There were two cities just really close to it, and that city ended up uh, eventually disappearing because it didn't have a substantial water source to take care of it. And uh, the church of Laodicea is mentioned uh, by the Apostle Paul in Colossae in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and chapters 4. Again, Colossae was eight, mile, eight miles away from um, Laodicea, so it was right there close by. And even in that letter, he gives a sense that things aren't quite right and there's some issues that need to be dealt with. And for them to read the Church of Colossae, it applies to them, as well as the letter that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans to be written, to be read by the Colossae Church. But that letter to the Laodiceans uh, was not uh, meant by God to be a part of the canonized scripture. So we don't have that letter to the Church of Laodicea. But um, we do have the letter to the Colossians. And we see here, again, an ancient map of the way it would have looked during the time that John wrote the book of Revelation. And then we see, again, the, the mail route, if you would, of how it spelled out. So the first church was Ephesus, we looked at, and above that, Smyrna. And then you look in sort of that horseshoe shape coming down to the final church now of Laodicea. By far, it was the wealthiest of the seven cities that we have looked at. Very prestigious city, a large a Jewish population, very wealthy. Um, it had the banking center for the whole Asia Minor area at the time. As a matter of fact, Cicero himself uh, put his money in the bank of Laodicea. Interesting enough, in 60 AD, an earthquake devastated the city as well as Colossae and a number of the cities around it. And Rome stepped in saying, hey, we'll give you the money to rebuild. And, and the city of Laodicea said, we don't need you. We have our own resources, and actually, uh, by their own finances, they rebuilt the city far better than any city known at that time. And so they were a very independent group who didn't need the help of anyone else. They could do it themselves. They also had a unique fabric that was made there uh, in the Laodicea area, and it was a high-grade black wool, very glossy, soft uh, fabric, four different kinds of garments they made out of it, And you would know people from Laodicea because they would have these very eloquent uh, garments. And, uh, you know, sort of like when we have a a big event, you know, you put your black tux on, right? And 
the gal wears a black evening dress type of thing. Well, they just sort of lived in their black tux, if you would. That's the way it looked. And this fabric was very expensive to buy. And so we see today, Laodicea is simply what we call a tell. It's a mound that needs to be excavated. And indeed, it is being excavated uh, presently. Um, right next to the town is, uh, right next to the tell is a poppy field. And uh, this is what, during the time of John writing the letter, they would make an eye salve out of it. And it was actually famous throughout the world. And they had a, a medical center, a hospital there where people would come to uh, have their eyes worked on. And they would use these various ointments made from the poppy seed. And uh, because of that, they worshipped uh, the god of Asclepius, was the city god, which is the god of the Greek god of healing, and a, a big temple there, and all the pagan worship that went along with that. Here's another picture of the excavated street, and uh, and then underneath that, a drainage system, which is four feet high, which is huge for this time, showing again um, the planning of the city and how they did it in a grand and uh, fashion that. They were very wealthy people that could do this. They were also really an entertainment capital of the world, sort of the New York City Broadway stage or the Las Vegas, uh, if you would. And they had stadiums galore. Here's a northeast uh, view of a stadium they had. It's hard to see it, but if you look uh, from the other southwest view, you can see it a little bit more. The bowl seated about 35,000 people. They had a large theater. Again, things are uh, quite disarray here. And then a smaller theater, a little in better order. Then they had a, a, what's called an odium, which is a gymnasium bathhouse, but it also had a, a center for lecture. And this is what it looked like there. Here's one in Greece. This, is, uh, this isn't the one in Laodicea today. This is actually in Greece, but this is what it would have looked like uh, if you could see it in better fashion. They had a giant gymnasium there with games, and even the uh, Roman type of games of gladiators were fought here. And here's an exterior view and an interior view. It was a large, beautiful building at its time. Its water system was the real Achilles heel of the city because they had to get their water six miles away. But they built this radical, elaborate aqueduct system to bring the water to them. But the only water source that was available was a hot water spring full of all kinds of minerals, uh, would have had a strong like sulfur smell to it. And it, they came through aqueduct trying to cool the water down, and then eventually it came into a pipe system. And then from the pipe system, it went into a giant water tower. And the whole thing is corroded and blocked because of the mineral deposits. The calcium deposits over time completely closed it shut, um, as the hot water springs do. And so this was the, the real difficulty because here you are in this very hot climate and the water you have is always warm. So, you know, you can imagine somebody coming in from out of town going, oh man, just a nice cool glass of water. Of course, they didn't have ice in these days. So, you know, you give them this glass of water and they look at sort of greenish and minerals in it and they can feel the warmth of the cup and they, oh, you know, that, that, that didn't hit the spot at all. And then on top of that, um, it weakened them because any time there was a threat of a battle, they immediately had to try to compromise. They immediately had to use diplomacy because they couldn't stand a siege because it was easy. All they'd do is break one spot in their six-mile aqueduct system, and they had no ability to defend themselves. They had no water. And so they had become a very diplomatic, compromising people, and they were known for that. 
um, because they had no ability to defend themselves. And that's why the city's not there today. I mean, if you have a city anywhere in the world, the number one thing you ask, is there a water source? After the water source, then from there, you begin to look at uh, other things that might be important for a city. But without a water source, you cannot sustain life. And it was foolish for them to have built the city where they did to begin with. But here it says in chapter 3, verse 14, the angel of the church, notice here, of the Laodiceans. Now this is interesting. Because if you look at the other six churches, he talks to them as one body. As the body of Christ. As to the church of Ephesus. Or the church of Sardis. Or the church of Philadelphia. Here he doesn't do that. He addresses this to the Laodiceans. Interesting, the word Laodicea, you might have recognized it being a part of a word earlier where the Lord said, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nico meaning to rule over or to lord it over. And then Laetans referring to the people, ruling over the people. And God said, I hate that form of government. Well, here it's sort of the opposite. He says, Leo referring to the people. And then Dosia, we get our word democracy or uh, democratic from that word. And so the people are ruling democratically. In other words, they all are, have a voice in how the church is to be ran. They all, it's by the popular vote of, of how things are going to go. And that's not the way Paul set up the church. He set it up with the pastor and elders and the leadership running the church as they're obedient to Christ. But this church is often, as you see in Christianity throughout history, when people become rich and affluent, and begin calling the shots, then they begin to make the church in their carnal image until eventually the church ceases existing. And so the Lord rather sarcastically here says, I'm not just talking to the pastor, but I've got to talk to the whole congregation here because you guys are all really the ones running the church. And he says in verse 14, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is called the amen. Now we, when we pray, say amen because it means so be it, Lord. Or this is of the truth. This is the right will. Jesus tells us that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. And when we know that he hears us, we have the very thing we ask of him. So the Bible says where two or three are gathered together in his name and we pray in agreement Whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven. Loose on earth is loose in heaven. So we say amen to say, this is your will. This is your heart. We're in agreement that this is what you want, Lord. Amen. And Jesus is not only in agreement with the will of God. He is, in essence, the will of God. (laughs) Jesus himself, when he came into this world, every word, every thought, every step, everything he did was perfectly in the will of his Father. Jesus said, I always do the things that please him. Is there anybody that's ever walked this planet could say that same thing? But Jesus, from the day he was born until the day that he died on the cross, he was himself the amen. The one who was perfectly in the will of the Father, completely, entirely, and never anything except that. He's also the one who is faithful. Later on, we get to Revelation 19, 11. We're going to see the Lord ascending to earth on a horse coming to the planet and there it says 
as he saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. The Lord is the faithful one. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, If you are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He'll never change. He'll always be for you. He won't be against you. When everybody else has given up on you, the Lord has not given up on you. When everybody else says there's no way you can be helped, the Lord says, yes, I am still the God who will forgive, who will love, who will have mercy, No matter how you are, my nature stays the same. I am always going to be faithful before you. And he is the one who is true. And he is the faithful and the true witness. He's the one who revealed his father to us. In Matthew 11, 27, it says, All things have been delivered to me by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor... Does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him? The Son is the faithful and the true witness has revealed his Father. In John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he, Jesus, has declared him. Jesus has declared the Father. Imagine if we didn't have the New Testament, guys. Imagine if all we had the Old Testament and the very end of the Old Testament, God says, your sacrifices are unacceptable, your heart is not right with me, end of story, 400 years of silence. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene and says, make straight the way of the Lord. I'm just a voice, but one's coming after me, I'll point to him. He's the one, he's the Messiah. Look to him. And Jesus came on the scene and he brought to us grace. The law came through Moses but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. God revealed to us his truth of his justice and his judgment, but Christ brought to us salvation. And all the law is true and correct, but yet we in our weakened state could not fulfill the law. So Christ, it tells in Romans 8, that he fulfilled the law in his own flesh, that by a gift, by grace, he could give us eternal life. As a gift, he can give you of his righteousness. And so we have learned through Jesus Christ of the love the Father has for us. We have learned through Jesus Christ how to interpret the whole Old Testament. We have learned through Jesus Christ and his apostles and his prophets the truth concerning God's heart, his likes, his dislikes, who he is, who he isn't. Jesus has been a faithful witness to declare everything that we need for life and godliness. All the word of God's been inspired by him that we would lack nothing. It's good for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God would be thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. Jesus, the faithful witness, carried it all the way through to the end, that we would lack nothing. And he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now we in the English have one word for beginning, but... In the Greek, the the word here is referring to origin. 
or the beginning as in the source of. Christ is the beginning or the source of everything that exists. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, referring to Jesus, the Word, nothing was made that was made. He's the source of everything. And guess what that means? He's the source of you. (laughs) The Bible tells us that He personally, in your mother's womb, knitted you. And He knows every little intricacy about you right down to the number of hairs upon your head. Christ knows you inside out. Later on, he's going to say, come to me for counsel. Who better? (laughs) The one who made you. I mean, imagine if you had some unique foreign car, say it came from Italy, and you start having problems with it over here in America, and you written back and forth in the company and said, try this, try that, and you've done everything you can and the thing still isn't working right. And they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to actually send you the guy who invented the car and who actually built the car himself. We're going to fly him over here and have him work on your car. How would you like that? It's like, that's great. So he comes over, he looks at the car, and he goes, here's what I need to do. Would you say, hold on just a minute, I first want to get a second opinion. You don't need a second opinion. The guy invented it. The guy built it. Any other opinion is a lesser opinion. In the same way, we learn in Isaiah 9, he is the great counselor. There's a lot of opinions we listen to, but there's the one opinion that counts. And that's the opinion of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who's the originator of you, of your brain, of your existence on this planet and your eternal existence after this planet. It's him. And in verse 15, he says, For I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. I know all about you, not just what you think about yourself or what you want others to think about you, but I know the truth about you. And he says this to all the churches. And he says, you guys are in a very unique place. I mean, some of the churches, I was able to come in and say, I mean, even some of them are really sinful. He came in and said, hey, here's the areas you're hot in. Boy, you're standing on the word. You know, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You're, you're servants. I mean, he's able to tell them where they're hot. And then he tells them where they're cold. You're listening to this woman, Jezebel. She's immoral. A lot of you guys are committing fornication with her. You need to kick her out of the church. You, need to, you know, it was just clear. This is where you're at, and there's where you're at, and you need to repent of that, and you need to keep doing that. But he comes to the church of the Laodicea here, and he says, you know, I I wish I could put my finger on some radical sin you're committing. You're not. You're, You're moral, but you're not. Because I look at your heart, and I look at your mind, and and I know what's going on in secret. You, you appear as if you're committed and surrendered and, and being a servant, but, you know, it's just the minimal. It's not what I have for your life, but you're, you're doing enough to make it appear as if you are doing it. And here the Lord, time and time again, has no doubt brought convicting message. And each time, it just rolled off him like a duck off the, like a water off the duck's back. It had no effect. Their their heart was of plastic. 
when the sword of God's word came to pierce, it just sort of boing, boing back, you know? There is nothing of flesh to cut. There is no blood in their heart to bleed. They were just sort of this neutral people who believed themselves to be fine the way they were with no need of change. You know, it makes me wonder, did the church of Laodicea really hear the message to the church of Laodicea? (laughs) You know, we've been studying these seven churches and boy, I've talked to people and and they said, man, that first week, the church of Ephesus, that was me. That was me through and through. I left my first love, and I'll tell you, since then, I have repented. I started doing the works at the beginning, and I'll tell you, I'm alive again spiritually. They repented. The people amongst us who heard the, the message of the church of Ephesus, did you hear it? It was the very medicine that needed to be applied to your wound. But did you apply it? For some of you, we came to the, the church of Pergamos, or Thyatira, where there was immoral stuff going on here. That's me. I'm living with my girlfriend in sin. I've been dabbling around in pornography over here. That was me. I repent. I repent. God, forgive me. And since then, man, I've just been living a holy, righteous life. And boy, that message got me back right. But were there people that the message of the church of Ephesus was for them and they didn't hear it? And here now we come to the very end where we've talked about all seven churches as we're heading there today. And spiritually, where you were before we started the church, before we started the book of Revelation, and now as we finish looking at these churches, you're in the same spot. Nothing's pierced you, nothing's moved you, nothing's changed you. Spiritually, where you were and where you are today is identical. It's the exact same place. God, help us. If we pass this season and all that needs to be plowed up is not plowed up. As the prophet said, give me a heart of flesh. Replace it with this heart of stone. God, give me a heart of flesh and then stick your plow in deep and rip it up. I know it's going to hurt. I know there's going to be ripping and tearing and bleeding. I know the hook in the plow is going to get hooked around that giant root system of lust or greed or selfishness or idolatry or sinfulness of whatever kind and rip it, God. I know the root is going to be ripped out and there's going to be bleeding and tearing and there's going to be a giant scar that's going to remain, but I don't care. Be hot or be cold. Come up here and scream at me afterwards. Swing at me. But don't just walk out of here saying, oh, wasn't that a lovely message today? I have no idea what he said, but it doesn't matter because we're fine the way we are anyway. Don't do that. The Lord is saying, man, I I wish you guys were just radically on fire in a life of obedience or that you were somebody that's never heard about the Lord. But the fact is, is you're you're inoculated to the truth. I have had more than one opportunity to go down and preach at the San Diego Rescue Mission. That's a tough crowd. (laughs) Because these guys are told, if you go in and listen to this guy preach, we'll feed you afterwards. So they're highly motivated to be there, but it didn't say they had to listen or even stay awake. And 
the fact is, is these guys have probably heard a gospel message a thousand times more than any of us. I mean, they could probably preach better messages than any of the guys given the messages. But yet, as soon as the message is over, they just get up and go eat their bowl of soup and out they go. Back on the streets doing their drugs or alcohol or whatever. Not, not that some hearts don't get touched. And, and not that they're not doing a great job down there. They are. But I'm just talking about a heart that's just inoculated. They can't hear it anymore. They can't be moved by it anymore. They've come to this place like the water of Laodicea. Started out all hot, but the time it went through, traveled through time, down through the aqueduct, through the pipes, it's no longer hot that you could boil some soup with it. It's not cold that you could be refreshed by it. It's just there. It's wet. But outside of that, it's pretty putrid stuff. You look through church history, you can see since Christ raised from the dead and Christianity began that there's, there's really just a couple of major events that, that shaped not only Christianity, but shaped the whole world. One of those was in the 1500s with Martin Luther in the Reformation period. But when this Catholic monk began to see the corruption in the church and it began to grieve him and, and he didn't want to leave the Catholic church. He didn't want to poo-poo at all, but yet he saw the corruption. He began to study through the book of Galatians and then Romans and, and all of this stuff going on. It just grieved him. And he finally went to Wittenberg and tacked up a 99 thesis saying, give people a Bible. Quit telling them they can't read the Bible and, and went on through the list. Well, it started a reformation. He was shocked. But it shook everything up. And basically that shaking went worldwide at that time and brought us out, even secular history will tell you, out of the dark ages into the enlightened period. But it was first a spiritual enlightenment, then the enlightenment of everything else. You can go back to the 1800s in England You have what's called the Westland Revival to date. It's the most powerful revival in history. Shook the entire planet for decades. It came to America in what was called the um, Great Awakening with George Whitfield and then Jonathan Edwards. Shook the very foundations of our country. But yet if you go to Germany today and try to share the gospel, (laughs) they're not hot, they're not cold. Oh, I'm so glad that you believe what you believe, it seems to be very important to you, and I really respect what you believe, but I don't want to talk about God. That's a personal thing. Bye-bye. You go to England today, it's the same thing. You can't get somebody mad at you talking about God. (laughs) You can't get somebody to respond to you talking about God. They they have no feelings on the subject either way. It means nothing to me. It's like somebody who's who never watches baseball, doesn't know anything about baseball, and you tell them the World Series is on. Woohoo! Get them to sit down and try to watch the game with you. You can't do it. They're just, they're just great. You like baseball? I'm happy for you. I just am not interested. That's the way they are in this. And our country is right behind it. At one time, the entire world, all the missionaries, all the evangelism went out, went from Germany. 
And then it became this lukewarm status and then eventually died. The same thing with England. This lukewarm status and then it died where every missionary basically in the world, every evangelistic outreach was from England. Now it basically is non-existent. And our country is heading in the same way. If I were to have to describe the Church of America as one of the seven churches, it would be this one. I believe the Church of America... Christendom across the board is the church of Laodicea. We're not hot, we're not cold, but we just sort of show up for attendance, you know, put in our hour, or hour and a half, and then we go on and live life how we're going to live life. We don't share the Lord because we don't want to upset people at work. That'd be a difficult thing to go to a work environment where people are upset. Of course, I don't want to share it to my neighbors because I don't want to make my neighbors upset either. I definitely don't want to share it with my relatives because I enjoy the holidays and want to continue to do so. And I'm just not comfortable talking to the Lord with strangers because it's just not my ministry and I'm not comfortable with that. Exactly who do you share the Lord with? Well, whenever I get the opportunity. With who? You just named everybody that exists. Oh, I'm a very evangelistic person. I just never share the Lord. You're not hot, you're not cold. You believe all the right stuff, but you don't do any of the right stuff. You see people like that. They just sort of slide down to this swampland in which they live spiritually. And they just sort of drudge through the muck and the mire and rip off the leeches as they go through this land and they just sort of exist there. And then all of a sudden what happens is Difficulty comes, sometimes relationally, sometimes health, their health, a friend's health, their kid's health, their spouse's health. Sometimes finances collapse on them. And all of a sudden they go from this nominal Christian who doesn't serve, who doesn't go to mission trips, who doesn't teach Sunday school or usher or go to the orphanage or give or pray or, you know, they'll show up there one time Sunday and that's about all you're going to get at me is, you know, I'll come and sit in my pew and listen to your pastor and outside of that I'm going to go out and do my own life. I've got too many things I'm busy with. And all of a sudden, they get shaken. And all of a sudden, this guy who just, you couldn't get him to the prayer meeting is at the prayer meeting. The guy you could never get him in the men's fellowship or get him to go to the orphanage, he's there now, man. He used to be the last guy showing up and the first guy to leave. Now he's the first guy to show up and the last guy to leave. He never had anything to share out of the word because he was never in the word himself. He's for it. He just never did it. So trying to fellowship with other Christians was almost impossible because he had nothing to share, at least from the heart. But now that he's going through this hard time, he's praying, he's crying out to God, he's reading the Bible, and all of a sudden you start to see this guy climb out of this damp valley that he's been living in, and he gets up on top of the mountain. He becomes a light. He becomes the salt. He's fruitful. You see the fruit of the Spirit in his life. There's love and joy and peace and there's a kindness, there's a compassion, there's an interest in other people besides his self and his own money and his own job and his own life. He's, he's, he's giving of himself in many different ways and you're going, wow, who is this guy? I've never met him before. He's this wonderful person. All kinds of fruit in his life. And sometimes as he's going through those difficult times, sometimes it's months, you just constantly see this fruitfulness in his life. And then the hard time passes. And then it's just like a straight shot down back to the valley in which he came from. 
The fact of the matter is, is we don't want to be that person. We want to live an on-fire life even when we don't feel it. We want to seek the Lord as if we're desperate even when we're not desperate. Because it's the truth. We are desperate even if we don't feel it. We need the Lord. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And the Lord says, I wish that you were movable. I, I wish there was something about you that could fill, that could be poked, that could be prodded. You just sort of are apathetic either way. And then he goes on to say, in verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm, you're neither cold nor hot, I would vomit you out of my mouth. Now I've got to stop here and, and make a couple of clarifications. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not rude. So I do not believe here the Lord who is perfect in love is trying to be rude. I do not believe he's going for the shock effect here. Try to shock him. Saying, you make me want to barf. You know, and sort of, oh man, the Lord used the V word, vomit, you know. He must really be upset. I don't think he's doing that. I don't think he's trying to be sarcastic or mean, you know, trying to just jab you. Oh, this will hurt him. I think the Lord is genuinely just being honest. And he is saying, I can't receive anything that comes from you. When I try to, as my eyes go to and fro throughout the earth and I come upon the church of Laodicea and I listen to their worship, it's like drinking that water, green stuff, sulfur smelling, you know? I just, oh, I'd rather stay thirsty than receive of your worship. When I look at your hearts of giving and serving and, and witnessing and loving and seeking me, the form, the way, the heart, ugh, I, I, I can't stand it. Every Sunday when I come and my eyes come and fall upon the church of Laodicea, I just get sick and I've got to quickly look over at Philadelphia so I don't throw up. There's nothing about your Christianity that's Christian to me. There's nothing about your worship to Jesus that's worshipful to me. You say you gather together in my name and I'm not there. You say it's for me. I don't receive it. What you are offering to me is neither hot, it's neither cold. It's something that sickens me. Wow. Wow. To what degree would the Lord have to be pushed to say such a thing? You know, when you look at the nature of Jesus, he says, I'm lowly and gentle of heart. In my presence, you'll find a rest for your souls. Come to me. You'll find a rest. You find the Lord always being gentle and lowly of heart throughout the Bible. But here, all of a sudden now, he comes and he, he says something rather out of character. He says something that's sort of surprising to us who know the Lord and his love and his kindness and his goodness. And, and you realize, wow, this is heavy. Could you imagine a guy on his honeymoon night? He looks over to his new bride and says, by the way, there's something I want to tell you. You make me want to barf. Could you imagine such a thing? But yet that is what the church is. We are the bride of Christ. That's us. We are the bride that the Lord's going to come back 
to take unto himself. And so here we are, a bride that makes him sick. Can such a thing be? And then he says in verse 17, Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, but you don't know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The spiritual appraisal of yourself is so opposite of my spiritual appraisal of you. They were a wealthy place. They had a lot of money. They had a lot of comforts. And and the Bible tells us that blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. But riches often keep us from filling that poor in spirit status as we really are. In Matthew 19, verse 23 and 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a whole separate hurdle that people who are wealthy have to get over to be right with God. Now let me say something here. I'm talking to every one of us. The almost 300 million people we have in our country, guys, compared to the 6 billion people on our planet, every one of us are incredibly wealthy. You could take the poorest person in America and he still lives a higher standard than almost everybody in the rest of the planet. Just the freedoms we have, the ability for education, for jobs, for medical uh, attention. I mean, you go right on down. Even in many countries where they have the money, it doesn't exist. In many countries where people are financially wealthy, there's no security. (laughs) They've got to hire an army to protect them so they can sleep at night, and then they don't sleep too good. Even if they had a million dollars, there's no doctors to go to. They have to fly to another country. I'm saying we, every one of us, the fact that you live in this country, you are, whatever percentage, the top 10%, 12%, I don't know, of the world, we are the top wealthy. We are, I don't know what percentage of the world's money is here in America, but it's most of it. And the rest of the world has a little bit compared to what we have. And there's something about having wealth that can deceive us. It makes us think that we are right spiritually because we are right financially. Because Look at how wealthy I am. It's, can't you just feel God's big giant smile on me? But the reality is, is there's all kinds of rich people that are atheists. <laughs> now, I, I agree that whatever wealth you have, it has been given by God. But could a person be not right with God and still wealthy? Absolutely. But there's a sense I'm wealthy, I'm healthy, that I'm also wealthy and healthy with God. Because I am blessed in so many ways upon this earth, I must be blessed because God's allowing all these blessings to flow into my life. And guys, it's not true. In some cases it is, but across the board it's not true. So to say because I'm doing well in my work, I'm doing well as a Christian, because I am healthy physically, I am healthy spiritually, that's the way we feel, but it can be deceptive. In Proverbs 30, he wisely says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, 
lest I be fool and deny you. He knows it. I don't want to deny the Lord. I don't want to be so rich that I have in my heart. And here's Solomon, who was probably one of the richest men that's ever lived. And he said, I know what that's like to have so much wealth that in your heart you're saying, who needs God? I am God. In James chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Now, as we look to the Bible, God's made all kinds of people rich, so there's no shame in being rich. But we also do know that there is a hurdle out of the way for people who are poor to have a greater faith in God. Rich people can have that same faith. They just have a few extra hurdles to jump over before they get that faith. And so whether we feel it or not, we are poor in spirit every single day. And how we need to come to that place over and over again to be desperate before the Lord as if our life depended upon it, even if we don't feel it. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses said, hey, we're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. And let me tell you something, guys. There's something that you've never experienced. You guys were slaves in Egypt for 430 years. You've been in this wilderness eating manna and drinking water coming out of a rock that God's provided. But you've never had a point in your life where you've been wealthy. And I want to tell you about it. When you guys get over into that promised land, your fields are growing great. Your herds are multiplying. you got this big, beautiful house. Every meal you can eat as much as you want. There's still tons of food left over. He goes, this is what's going to happen. When you push yourself back from that table and you've got a big, full tummy, your heart is going to want to say this. Look at what I have done by my hand. Honey, tell me, am I the best farmer around here or what? Boy, I'm so smart. Those other dummies down at the work, they wouldn't know what to do without me. I'm a self-made millionaire. That's going to be your heart. But when that feeling comes, when that thought comes... I want you to remember you were slaves for 430 years and you had no way of getting out of that slavery. And God came with a mighty hand and got you out of there. You were stuck in the wilderness and you couldn't get out of there. And God brought you into this promised land. God gave you the land where you dwell in. God, it's God by his hand who has given you the power that then you could go and get the wealth. But without God's power, you never could have got the wealth. So is it true that my diligence helped me to get my wealth? Yes. Is it true that my mind, thinking thoughts that nobody else is thinking, helped me to start this business nobody else had? Sure. Was it my diligence going through school and getting my education that brought me to where I'm at? Sure. But let's face it, guys. Right now, you could breathe in some microscopic particle that attaches itself to your lungs, and you're dead in a week. What are the odds of you getting slammed by a Mack truck this week? It should have already happened 20 times. But angels watching over you. Every step you take, you need to have this overwhelming sense. If God did not allow literally 100,000 things to simultaneously work perfectly in my body, I couldn't take that step. My brain would not function. My eyes would not see. My hand could not grasp. 
Everything we have, it's because God has given us one more day on this planet. And every bit of strength we have is by the grace of God. And we should always remember that whatever we have, even though it may be from our diligence, kudos to you. It may be because of your intellect. There's a few of us that have it. Whatever it is, it's God who has made you. It's God who's enabled you. It's God who has done it to bring you to this day. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4 stood on top of the palace and said, look at all that I have done by my hand. And as the words were in his mouth, he was struck as an animal. And for seven years he ate grass like a cow and his fingernails grew out like the claws of a bird and his hair like the feathers of a bird. And he wandered around as an animal. And at the end of seven years, it says, he looked to heaven and I said, there is one kingdom that will endure. There is one that alone that has dominion over all things and that is God. And immediately my mind came back to me and he says, I honor and extol the living God. And I've also learned that God can humble anybody, (laughs) even if he's the king of the world. And so how we need to have that humble spirit, but they didn't have it. In Jeremiah 9, the Lord says, don't let the wise man glory in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. And that's what they were doing in Laodicea. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. What's real riches, guys? It's having an intimate relationship with Jesus now and for all of eternity. Think about it. This life is a vapor of time. That's what the Bible calls it. But a moment. And you guys who are growing older, you know that's the truth. Yesterday you were a three-year-old kid cruising around on your tricycle, and here you are today, 60 years old. And it went by like that. That's whatever you have on this planet, whether it's hardship whether it's health, whether it's wealth, whether it's poverty, it's only here for a second. And then we're off this planet forever. So if I were to come up to you and hand you a check for a billion dollars and say this is yours for one second, here you are, congratulations, you're a billionaire, thank you very much. Would you now walk around and tell everybody, I used to be a billionaire. No, because one second of time isn't enough to matter that you were a billionaire. In the same way, when you realize we're going to live forever in heaven, forever and ever, I mean, even a billion years, your mere hundred years on this planet wouldn't even click as a second. So it's not a great evil if you're poor here because God's going to make it up to you for all eternity. Remember he said to the church of Sardis, it may look like you're poor to the persecuted church there in Sardis. It may look like you're poor, he says, but I tell you, you're rich. Why? Because they had wealth in heaven. They had riches in heaven for all of eternity. And then they said, I have need of nothing. There was a self-confidence that they had deep in their hearts. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, despairing of even life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians 3, he goes on to say in verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant and not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And he goes on. We have no room to have that independent 
self-sustaining spirit as if we ourselves are contained in and of ourselves. It's only by God that we live and breathe and it's only by God that we're able to do anything. But yet the Laodiceans said, man, that's me. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I'm in need of nothing. I've got everything under control. And God said, you don't know. You see things as you see things. You don't see things as they really are. I know. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. Our heart's deceitful. Our heart will tell us that things are great when they're not. In 1 Corinthians 4, they were accusing Paul. And Paul said, you know, I don't agree with anything you're saying, but who knows for sure? God knows. He's the only one, and he'll judge it on that day of judgment and not beforehand. And David in Psalms 139 said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. So David knew, I can't, I'm not a good judge of my own heart. I don't know. I mean, I think I know, and maybe I'm right. But I, I, you know for sure, God. And he's saying to the church Laodicea, What you think you know, you don't know. Because I say to you, This, that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, think about that. You're wretched. That's what Paul called himself. In Romans 7, verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, that is my body. Is that the way you feel? You wake up and look in the mirror and say, Oh, wretched man that I am. I do. I know there's no good thing that dwells in this flesh. It's sold under sin into bondage, and I know it one little baby step. I could be into any and every sin. That's what should make us poor in spirit. That's what should make us desperate every day. To fall on our knees and say, God, give me the grace today to obey you. Give me the strength, Lord, to do your will. Take these hands, take this feet, take this brain, take this mouth, Lord. I give it to you. I know today you have made this day, and it may be my last. I want to live it totally for you, God. Take control of my life. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. What evil? Me. (laughs) Deliver me from me. Help me, God. I know Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his poema, his work of art, that God's predestined ahead of time that we would walk in it. I know today, God, you have a very specific divine plan. And I want to walk in it. Lord, take my life. I don't care the hardship. I don't care the difficulty. I don't care what you've got to take away or strip me from. Whatever it takes, God, there's only one thing that matters. And at the end of this day, I have walked in obedience to you. I prayed a prayer like that one time at the end of a message. I got a letter from a lady saying, don't ever pray a prayer like that for me again. That's scary. We shouldn't feel that way. I really mean it. I don't care, God. Whatever you've got to do to my flesh and my surroundings to make my heart lined up into perfect obedience to you, do it. I don't care what it is. I don't care how hard it'll be. I don't care how difficult it'll be. I don't care how much you've got to take from me or strip from me, how difficult my life must be for me to walk in obedience, whatever it takes. You know what's allotted for me that I could be in that right relationship. Because I know I'm wretched. I want all that you have, God. And then he said, you're miserable. Of course they're miserable. 
They have too much of God to enjoy the world, too much of the world to enjoy God. The Bible says if you have a love of the world, you can't have a love of God. And so that's a miserable place to be. The world despises you because you're a Christian, but yet as a Christian you have no reality, you have no power, you're a mockery. All the people of the various pagan religions, they got power from Satan, but you, because you're not obedient to your God, you have no power with your God. They have a form of religion with no reality, no power. And he says, by the way, I'm looking at your heavenly bank account. You guys are broke. I know on earth you got some money down in your bank of Laodicea. A lot of good that's going to do you up here. You're completely broke. You have no treasures in heaven. And you're blind. That's radical. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, that's what he calls non-believers. In 1 Peter, he says, you guys are short-sighted even to blindness. You guys are, you're not even able to hear God's voice. You're not even to know, discern if that's Jesus or not Jesus. You're, you're walking around in blindness. God is not in your thoughts. You're not yielded to him. You, you don't have a sense of what he's saying or doing. And you're naked. This is funny because they had the nicest clothes in all of the area. This very expensive garment they were able to afford being in the city. But yet God says, uh-uh, you're completely naked spiritually. That's heavy. Because the Bible says when you come to Christ that he robes you in his robe of righteousness. And evidently they had lost that. Galatians 5 says if you try to justify yourself through the law, then you've fallen from grace. By them and their own self saying, I'm righteous, I'm good, and myself, they've lost that robe of righteousness. And then he tells them in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold, refining the fire. And Isaiah 55 says, come to me even if you don't have any money. <laughs> you can come and buy and eat. So we're not talking about something with money. We're talking about something that can only be bought with a sincere heart of repentance. And I will give you gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eyes have that you may see. So come to me, listen to me. Take what I have. I don't need your merchandise, but you need mine. First of all, you need some real gold that's been refined in the fire. That's an exact description in 1 Peter 1 of our faith. He says, our faith, which is more precious than gold, though it's tried in a fire, tested by the fire, would be found to the praise and the honor and the glory of the revelation of Jesus. In James 1, he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And let patience have its perfect work that you be complete, perfect, lacking nothing. And so here he's basically saying, guys, get back in the fire. You started murmuring, complaining. This is hard. This is difficult. Jesus, you said if I follow you, I wouldn't have all these hard times. Well, the Lord never said that. And God said, hey, if you don't want to change, I'll turn the fire off. But you're going to stay as you are. Your character isn't going to grow. Your faith isn't going to grow. You yourself aren't going to be the kind of person that lives to the praise of the glory of God. And they're like, I'm fine the way I am. Great. (laughs) No fire, and I get to stay the way I am. I'm happy with that. And he says, don't be that way. Get back in the fire. Let trials and the difficulties, because of the word's sake, come back and, and become changed in your character, that you might really have true riches, that you might start living a life where you can have riches in heaven for all of eternity. And I can give you a white robe referring to his righteousness. And then your nakedness would be taken away. And then you need, I don't need your medical center, but you need mine. 
you need to come to Dr. Jesus and get some eye salve so your gunked up, pussy eyes are gone and you can see and be healed as the things as they really are. In verse 19, he clarifies all of this. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He now comes back and he says, hey, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be this critical person to pick out all the wrong things you're saying and doing and slam you with it. There's only one reason I am saying this, and that's because I love you. It tells us in Hebrews 12 that every son of God receives punishment from God. And if you don't receive punishment from God, then you are not a child of God. If you're here today living in sin and you have no conviction about it, the heavy hand of God is not upon you, you don't hear a still small voice saying, this is sin, this is wrong, repent and turn. Guess what? You're probably not a Christian. God only spanks his own kids. I learned this back when I played football. The coach is starting to yell at people and he's like, man, you know, I'm messing up and boy, the coach is all mad. I'll never make the team. And then you quickly learn, everybody who's not making the team, the coach doesn't correct them. He just lets them do the drills, do the running, says nothing to them. Everybody that got yelled at made the team. Because he's saying, since you made the team, I want you to do better. And God is basically saying, if there wasn't a chance of making the team, I wouldn't be saying this. I, would, I wouldn't waste my breath. I'm not pointing this out to condemn you. I'm not pointing this out to make you feel bad. I'm not saying, well, you pray 10 hours, pray 11 hours. I'm not trying to push you to some higher level. I'm trying to tell you the truth that you might be saved. I'm trying to tell you the truth that you might have great reward in heaven. I love you. And you need to repent. You cannot stay the way you are. And then he says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And notice this next two words. If anyone. You may be here today and you've been a Christian for 30 years. But today, you have to sorrowfully say, in those 30 years, most of them, I've been dead wood. (laughs) I've been hanging out. I fill a pew every Sunday, but that's it. I can't name one person I led to Christ. I can't tell you one person that I've even encouraged in the Lord. I'm a Christian because I come to church, because I say I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit in my life. It's okay. He loves you, and that's why he's standing at the door today. That's why he's speaking today. That's why you're here today. He's been talking, going, yoo-hoo, and you haven't heard anything, but now he's knocking, and the vibration of your door is rattling your room, and he's saying, wake up and go to the door. There's some of you here today that you've never heard about Christ. You've come here today, and you're going, wow, I want this Jesus in my life. I want to know God. I want to know that I have eternal life. I want the guilt of my sin taken away. Anyone. He's knocking on the door of your heart. All you have to do is open that door and he will come in and dine with you and he with me. God wants you guys. Do you hear it? He wants you. The creator of the universe desires you, longs for you. He's crying out for you. It's a wonderful thing to want to be wanted. 
It's a neat thing when maybe you can remember back being in high school and, oh, so-and-so thinks you're cute. That's a good feeling. So when somebody else likes you, it's a good feeling. It's, it's neat to be wanted. You have some guy saying, hey, I want to be your friend and come to my house and let's hang out. And it's a good thing to, to want to be wanted. But yet if somebody, somebody says to you, hey, I want to be your friend, well, I don't really want to be your friend. That's a hurtful thing. That's a scar that never heals. That rejection is a difficult thing. And Christ has been outside. He's been yelling. He's been knocking. You're rejecting him. I haven't rejected him. You didn't open the door. You've rejected him. You know he's there and you're not going to the door. That's as rude as it gets, guys. Turn the lights out. Turn the TV down. Shh. Maybe it'll go away. That's rude. That's a serious rejection. Even though you didn't open the door and say, get lost. It's a hurtful rejection. But he loves you. He's calling for you. What does he want? He wants you to be religious? Jesus hates religion. Religious people killed him. What does Jesus want? He just wants to be with you. And he wants you to want to be with him. He wants you to want to hang out with him. And he wants you to know that he wants to hang out with you. He wants to laugh and cry and walk the roads with you and go through good times and bad times. He wants to be that friend who loves at all times. He wants to be that friend that's closer than a brother. He wants an intimacy with you like no other intimacy that is on this planet. But you have to open that door. And maybe you're here today saying, man, I, I don't know what to do. You don't have to. Just open the door. He'll fix the mill. But I don't know what the next step is. Just open the door. He'll figure it out. He's the great counselor. Say, well, I open the door. What's next? He'll tell you. He'll lead you. And then notice verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Look, guys, no second-class citizenship. No punishment. He didn't say, well, since you've been a flaky Christian for the last 30 years, you know, coach. You know, no first-class seat for you, buddy. He doesn't do that. He says, you've been blowing it, but when I forgive, I forget. Just right now, repent. Right now, be zealous and repent. And the same exact reward the Father gave me. Think about that. Jesus, who is perfect in every way, obedient in every way, received a reward of his Father to sit upon the throne. He says, I'm going to give you the same exact reward I got if you'll repent now. Guys, is that grace or is that grace? No demerit. (laughs) No, you know, well, if you repent, maybe I'll let you be a street sweeper in heaven, you know? Maybe I'll, you know, let you come up here and wash the dishes. He he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give you exactly the same reward. But you got to repent and you got to do it now. Can you hear it today? This is the last time, guys. Can you hear it? Can you hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today? Have you come in here for the last two months hearing on these seven churches? You left here dry-eyed as you came in here dry-eyed. You left here intact, you came intact. 
when you should have come in here with poor in spirit and you should have left out of here with a trail of blood behind you where God's word had pierced you deeply. Get rid of that heart of stone. Cry out to God today for a heart of flesh. One that can fill, one that can bleed, one that can be pierced by the two-edged sword of God's word. That you become hot, not cold, and definitely not lukewarm. But as we wrap up these time in these seven churches and we begin to talk about the world who rejected Christ, that right now, that God has done his business with us. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we come before you today because many of us are so weak. Many of us are so numb. Many of us so have not felt the conviction of your spirit or the joy of the spirit in so long. We've learned to live in this plastic world that has no filling. And Lord, we don't have any answers, but we come. Some of us crawl to the door and scrape in our nails. We barely can make it to the doorknob, but we open it, God. Some of us are so weak that once we open the door, we pass out. But Lord, we come. We don't come enthusiastically. We don't come with a big giant smile on our face, but we came, Lord. We came and opened the door, and Lord, we need you to do the rest, but Lord, we've come. Lord, we ask you right now to rip away the things that need to be ripped away. Yes, Lord, we know it's going to go deep. The root system's going to wrap around every part of our heart and our mind and our body. Rip it, God. Yes, we know there's going to be bleeding. We know there's other things that are going to be ripped away with it. We know it's going to be painful. We know it's going to leave a scar. We don't care. Cut away, chop away, do whatever you need to do. But leave me here today, Lord. Whatever's left. But leave me today on fire for you. Loving you. Seeking you. Serving you. Jesus, you said, beware when all men speak well of you. Forgive me, Lord. For trying to be this diplomatic person that pleases everybody no matter what. Lord, I come today. And I want what you have for me. God bless you, sir. There may be others right now that need to come and do just like this man here and this woman here and just come and just say, Lord, I give myself to you. Really, the second service, I I said, I'm not going to give an altar call because by right, every one of us should come. It's us. Whether it's a seed or whether it's a giant oak tree, this is in every one of us. This is what we fight. We live in Laodicea. We fight the fight of the Laodicean. But we don't have to remain as we are. Christ has given us the promise that if we come, that it'll all be taken care of. So we're going to sing this song and just yield yourself to him completely as you do. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. This heart adore you, hope of a life spent with you. So here I am.
Thank you for being true. Thank you, Lord, for touching hearts here today. And I pray, God, that every one of us would not leave this place as we came in. But we'd leave, Lord, as you desire us to be. Complete that work in us, Lord. We look forward to you being our master passion. It's in you we want to live and move and have our being. It's in fellowship with you as life. Not only here upon this earth, but for all of eternity. Lord, we yield our lives to you today totally, completely. And ask that you'd keep us at that place, Lord, whatever it takes. Whatever hardship, difficulty. We don't care. As Paul said, that I might know you, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering, that I might be conformed to the image of your death, that I may attain to that resurrection of the dead. Lord, we have the same heart in us today. Putting that which is behind, behind, and now pressing forward to that which is in the future to grab a hold of what you have grabbed a hold of us for. Lord, words escape to say the depth of our hearts. Hear the groaning of our spirits today, Lord, and take it from here, God. We thank you. Lord, meet us tonight powerfully as we seek you and as a church family in the word and in prayer and in worship. Meet us here tonight, God. Meet us in all the studies all week, Lord. We don't want to be a bunch of lukewarm people going through the motions. We yield ourselves to you, God, completely, totally. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you do need prayer, the pastors and elders will be here for you to pray. But also, you can say to somebody around you what God spoke to you today. And then give them a prayer request. They can pray for you the rest of the week. God bless you. And have a great day in the Lord. Hope to see you back here tonight. Bye-bye.